0: Okay, good. Well, so glad to be together this morning. Once again, I want to say how great it is to have uh, flesh and blood in the space with us this morning. And we're also glad for those of you who are joining us by uh, live stream. We're continuing our study this morning entitled Fake News. This will be installment number three we began. And um, I don't have it on your outline or on your notes this morning, but kind of our, our headline theme is this notion from the Apostle Paul. Uh, where he says, you know, we're not out we're not out doing battle against flesh and blood, um, but really ultimately against spiritual forces. And then he breaks that thought down, and he says, eventually, what he says, what we're doing is we're destroying arguments that prevent people from the knowledge of God, that prevent people from knowing God. And so there is this, and I, you know, this is hard for us moderns, but in Paul's imagination, in his mind, uh, just understand that for him, there's almost a seamless flow between an unseen spiritual world and the seen flesh and blood world. And so he's talking about principalities and powers that really are um, uh, spiritual forces who are influencing the thoughts and the thinking of people, real people, boots on the ground. So Paul says here what we're doing, that the, the execution of this what we call spiritual warfare is really, you could say, it really is seamlessly woven into what we could call intellectual warfare. So Paul's saying, look, we're, we're, we're demolishing arguments, ideas that set themselves up. Um, against the knowledge of Christ and prevent folks from knowing God. So we're talking about some of these, uh, we're calling them fake news bullet points, and that's kind of how we've uh, shaped this study series so far. So here we go. Fake news item for today. And I got to say, this news item is fake news for different reasons than than the fake news items that we've covered before, and I'll just explain that as we go. So here's the fake news item for today. You ready? Christians believe that people are tortured forever. After death in a place called hell, what I'm referring to. Christians believe that people are tortured forever. Everybody, this is fake news. Don't you believe it? How could that be fake news, Pastor? Because I know all kinds of people who believe that. Here's why it's fake news. The reason it's fake news is because what's true, in fact, is that Some Christians believe that people are tortured forever, not all, not all Christians today and not all Christians throughout, certainly throughout the course of the history of the church, all right? So all of that is a setup for us to deal together, both in person and on live stream, with this subject of hell. This is a lively conversation within the church, and as I've said before, uh, uh, probably more so at this point in my life than in seasons past. Um, Many of the topics that I'm interested in studying and taking on together with you guys um, emerge from conversations that I have with folks. And I can tell you, just from, from my experience, this is a um, a lively subject for many people. It's like the skeleton in Christ- the closet of Christianity, you know, this belief that people are tortured forever in hell. So um, it raises an opportunity for us to talk about this. And of course, this isn't our first time to talk about this subject together, but it's worth visiting again um, because, one, you may not have been with us when we talked about it before, but also for all of us, you know, situations change, circumstances change, maybe even our friendships change, and we, you may have a friend who's asking questions about this. And as I said, uh, the interest in this study is really two layers deep. Uh, One is I'm interested in dealing with these fake news items to the extent that you yourself uh, might have been predisposed to adopt one of these fake news items, so it's a direct dealing with kind of where your heart and mind is. But then the secondary layer of this study is how can I help a friend or a family member uh, who may be struggling with this? And so, uh, this one, I think... uh, Is related, especially to perhaps even evangelism. There certainly are people in our world who, and we'll try to deal with that a little bit later. But someone who may say, you know, I, man, the whole thing about Christianity sounds all fine, but I just cannot accept, you know, if I have to believe, if to be a Christian, if I have to believe in a God that would torture people forever in hell, I just can't go there. So that's a that's a thing. That's an objection that's out there. So uh, we'll we'll get back to that. Um, I've got several quotes on the top of the um, of the documents for this. Uh, Study And I know that we're not reproducing outlines and passing them out. And so um, this could get lengthy, but I want to read at least some of these quotes because the idea here is to pull together the thoughts and sentiments of others um, that kind of represent at least my attempt to to pull together kind of um, the broad gamut of thoughts and uh, both pro and con and objections and so on from from thoughtful people. Uh, most of these are christians not all of them but they all represent you know i think they all of these thoughts are representative of perhaps a group of people who might share the same idea here's um here's a here's a uh, from a russian theologian nicholas Burdiev. Uh, he says i can conceive of no more powerful and irrefutable argument in favor of atheism than the eternal torments of hell russian christian theologian here's one from bertrand russell he's a uh, prolific writer, an atheist philosopher and writer. He says, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Bertrand Russell, that thought's out there. Here's one from Charles Darwin. You've heard of Charles Darwin. He says, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. This is a damnable doctrine. Wow, Charles Darwin. John Winham, an Anglican scholar. Unending Torment speaks to me of sadism, not justice. Interesting. If you've been in this conversation very long, um, you'll know that those who would defend the doctrine of eternal hopeless punishment would rely upon the idea of justice. Uh, and here's this Anglican Christian saying, actually, that sounds more like sadism than justice. Uh, here's one from John Stott, a beloved um, evangelical Anglican evangelical uh, pastor and um, bishop at some point. He says, emotionally, I find the concept of eternal torment intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. John Stott. Uh, Steve Gregg, Christian theologian, some of you may may recognize that name. Um, These are not fringe people, by the way. These are mainstream thinkers. Uh, He says, if anyone ends up permanently in hell, it will not only be that person, but God and anyone else who love that person who will also suffer for eternity. Steve Gregg. Clark Pinnock, you may remember that name. He was a longtime professor at Regent College. Um, the objections to the traditional view of the nature of hell are so strong and its supports so weak that it's likely soon to be replaced with something else. Okay, so that gives you just just kind of a sample palette of thoughts that are out there. And all of that said to kind of set the table for us to have this conversation about hell. And as I said before, um, this is not our first time to deal with this um, subject together in a worship service, even though this is unusual, but still this is our gathered service. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said before, when we talked about the topic in previously, it was in response to a number of conversations that I had had with people sort of quietly, hey, what about this issue of hell and how do I deal with it and all that? So I thought, well, let's just, you know, deal with it. And then after, um, it was about a year ago that we dealt with the subject before. And uh, after that, I continued to have uh, really great conversations with many folks throughout our church family. Um, and, you know, let me just say, uh, uh, our church family, I can tell you from my own, you know, conversations, our church family is composed of a variety of perspectives on this question. We are not a monolithic uh, community of faith here with regard to this question. Uh, and I, for one, am happy about it. Um, I can tell you that I've had conversations. I'm going I'm to outline once again kind of the three broad views, kind of thought families uh, about the question of hell, and um, as I did before. And I can tell you that our church is comprised of people uh, in, in all three categories. And so, uh, and I'm very happy about that um, for reasons that I will hope to explain. So there's a lot of questions about hell. Who goes there? What's it like? How long is it? Um, you know, where is it? What is it? Um, what is the meaning or purpose of hell? Um, all kinds of questions like that. Many, many questions. And as I said before, um, I, I don't think I have the ability to answer all those questions. And even if I did, certainly, I don't think we have the time to explore all of those. I have actually an agenda that is far more limited than attempting to answer all those questions. I'm happy to have a cup of coffee and surmise about all those questions and more, by the way. Uh, but, um, but my agenda here with you is actually far more limited than that. Um, and basically, I want to say three things, which I'm going to summarize right now and then come back and, and uh, address them all at more length. Here's the first. It goes like one, two, three. Ready? Um, throughout the centuries. Sincere Christians have held a variety of perspectives on the question of hell. That's just a fact. And I'm going to outline, as I said, a a three-part way to to, create a taxonomy of viewpoints. Number two, the creeds of our faith prescribe no particular perspective on the question of hell. Sincere Christians, therefore, are free to hold Divergent perspectives on the matter and still be held firmly um, within the faith of Christ. And then, number three, um, kind of as the therefore, given those first two, as has been the case throughout the church through the centuries and is still the case in some Christian denominations today, believers in this local church are free to hold any of a variety of perspectives on the question. So, that really is my agenda. Um, today, and I'm going to do my best to lay that out and then explore some some of the implications or some of the so what uh, of this. But let me just say it like this. Um, there are many issues that are at stake when we talk about um, the idea of health, important issues that are at stake. Like, for example, what is the nature of the human soul? And, and I'm going to try to touch on that when we, when we, as we go through these three different perspectives. But, but what is the human soul? Is the human soul... Um, an eternal is a human soul like when god creates a human being has god created something that will exist forever and ever and ever in some way shape or form or is it different than that and is the human soul um actually a temporal uh entity depending on other factors and we're going to get to that and that's a that's a heavy big enormous question so th- so that's one of the issues that's at stake when we talk about the nature of uh, of hell or what's hell about the other is what's at stake is the nature of God. Like, what is God like? You know, like, what is what is the nature and character of God? When we say that God is love, what do we mean? And how is it that our particular chosen perspective on the question of hell, how is it um, that, that our perspective on hell might imply, right, like something about the character of God, right? I mean, in other words, when we choose a particular perspective on hell and certainly i would say the what is the dominant view um of hell that is hopeless conscious torment forever and ever um that has direct implications on the nature of what god is like i mean what kind of god would set up a universe where the vast majority of human beings would eventually spend forever and ever hopelessly in torment right i mean that's a legitimate question so the character of god really is at stake in this question and thirdly Um, I want to say, and we're going to talk about this uh, later at the end, but the third thing, very importantly, that's at stake in this question of hell is, what is the good news of Christianity, and how do I share it, right? Like, what is the gospel, and how do I share it? I mean, because the reality is, um, uh, when, when when the idea of hell as eternal conscious torment is kind of the... Forms the boundaries of the horizon, right, of human, of human existence, then it's difficult, then I think reasonably, difficult to share the gospel without actually mentioning something about the threat of eternal conscious torment. And yet, and we'll talk about this some more, in all of the New Testament evidence that we have, we have a dozen or so, more or less, uh, sermons recorded for us in the book of Acts by the earliest evangelists, apostles. Uh, and in none of those evangelistic sermons as given to us in the book of acts hell is never mentioned nor is heaven by the way uh, as a motivator for choosing to follow christ in addition in all the writings of the apostle paul and the other apostles to the believers in all of the instruction to those believers to practice evangelism never ever ever is the threat of hell given as a motivation for believers to practice evangelism so there's an irony there in fact um, if, if, the, if the question is framed in terms of motivation, what the Apostle Paul does say is that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so the, the best we can find, if we want to say, you know, biblically speaking, what is the motivation for a person to choose to follow Christ? It's not a threat or a fear that's hanging out there. Uh, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and so i think we're best off if we kind of think through that in terms of what is the good news and how do we share it so there are some important things that are at stake but one thing that is not at stake when it comes to this question of hell um, one thing that's not at stake is what i'm calling the authenticity of my faith in christ in other words of course, we live in a certain place in a certain time, and there is a certain dominant view on the question of hell and sometimes it can feel like or someone might even explain explicitly that you know unless you hold this view like the rest of us or like the majority of us, then you 're not a real christian right um, and and i just want to I just want to make a plea that this can 't be so because here 's the deal um, well i guess several several points but but one the the, the foundation or the, the essentials of the Christian faith are actually found not in some recently spelled out uh, Christian confession, but the essentials of the Christian faith, I would plead the essentials of the Christian faith are actually found in the earliest creeds of the church. Nicene Creed, Apostolic Creed before that. Um, and the point there. Is that in all these creeds, you know, I, I, we believe in God the Father, uh, almighty maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ his only son. That, that, that's what I'm talking about. Um, in none of those creeds do we find any fully spelled out statement of hell. There is a mention of hell. Um, uh, uh, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, descended into hell, right? So, but, but there is no statement of, of the afterlife except that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So, Because of this, and actually historically this is what you find, in the early church, you actually find a variety of perspectives on the question of hell, and no one is accusing anybody else of not being a legitimate Christian. Uh, No one is accusing anybody else of heresy because you hold that position, you have to hold this position. You don't find that issue in the early church. In fact, you find, some say, uh, that among the six main schools of Christian discipleship, the view that is the dominant view today was actually a minority view in the first few centuries of the church um and it wasn't until augustine came along and he advocated for the position that's now recognized as the dominant position known as eternal conscious torment or hopeless conscious torment um augustine really advocated for that position and as is the case with many other issues that he uh, advocated for he kind of won the day and and set the stage for medieval christianity where um Eternal conscious torment really sucked all the air out of the room and became the dominant position, the position of the church. And then, of course, the Protestant Reformation came along, and we Protestants just inherited from, from the, uh, our Catholic brothers and sisters uh, that dominant position, eternal conscious torment. So, um, so you find this variety of positions in the, in the earliest uh, church, and so that leads to number three of kind of my outline. Therefore, you put all that together, and to say again our church does not have any particular statement that mandates what you believe about hell therefore you are free uh to hold any of a variety of positions on the question and so with that what I want to do is briefly outline um kind of a three category taxonomy for perspectives on hell you could certainly break it out broader than that if you wanted each of these three represents sort of families of thinking um about hell but Uh, I've just got it in a three-part system to kind of keep it simple, okay? So, um, uh, let me just say before we get started, because this is is difficult, one of the questions that you have to sort of grapple with when you talk about hell is who goes there, (laughs) like who are we talking about who goes there, and of course, among different groups of Christians, Different groups of Christians would have different criteria for who they're talking about, who goes there. Some Christians would say, well, the people who go there are the people who don't walk the aisle and pray the sinner's prayer, right? Because if you didn't walk the aisle and pray the sinner's prayer, then you're not saved. And if you're not saved, then, you know, there's the future that awaits you. Others would say, no, it really is about, you know, doing good and being a good, good person. And so regardless of any kind of confession or statement of faith or prayer, you might have prayed. You know, if you're an evil person, then, you know, you're still going to have... You know, this unpleasant destiny. Uh, And then other groups of Christians might put those two together, somehow or synthesize that, whether it's faith or I'm talking about the language of justification by faith right now. Right. Is it is it based on faith? Is it based on works? Do works not matter. Does faith not matter? What you know? So that in itself is a question. And so what I'm going to do is like make up a phrase for who it is we're talking about, who experienced the unpleasant destiny of hell. Um, without calling them the wicked because you know somebody who gets their justification by faith doctrine down just right you're not really talking about people who do bad things you're talking about people who don't make the right faith confession right if you get if you get your doctrine of justification down just right you're going to say it's not based on works it's not based on what you do or don't do it's based on faith or in this case the lack of right so it gets complicated and i don't want to repeat that every time we visit this piece of the conversation. So I'm going to refer to those who experience the unpleasant destiny as the unfortunate ones, right? I'm going to refer to them, and I'm thinking of uh, who's the character in The Little Mermaid that sang the song, You Poor Unfortunate Soul, Ursula. right? Ursula, yes. So I'm thinking of Ursula, and we're talking about what she's talking about. We're talking about the unfortunate ones, okay? So, uh, so, so, so with that, um, let's go through these three kind of Perspectives uh, on the question of hell. The first one is the most familiar. It is the dominant majority view today, uh, and that is def- described as eternal conscious torment. That is to say, that what the unfortunate ones experience after death is eternal. It continues throughout time without end. You go forever and ever and ever, and you just got started. There's forever and ever and ever to go after that. There is no hope or possibility of escape, or relief, or whatever, it just goes on. It is torment, so it's eternal. It is torment, it involves agony, misery, suffering, burning fire, leeching worms, uh, you know, and the grim descriptions go on. And at this point, I have to say that for many people, the imagination that we've inherited really comes as much as anything from Dante's Inferno as it does from anything in Scripture. Nevertheless, even the descriptions in Scripture uh, can sound rather grim. Uh, and then the third thing about the doctrine of eternal conscious torment um, is that it is conscious. That is, the unfortunate ones are aware of the misery, of the pain, etc., right? There are no sedatives allowed in hell, right? It's just flat on, you just take it. Misery and pain, no painkillers, nothing in hell. It is eternal conscious torment. This view is also sometimes described as hopeless conscious torment. Uh, and I think that phrase. It's helpful in the sense that it sheds some additional light on exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about a hopeless state of torment. Okay. The key word in a word uh, for this view, the key word is punish. In this view, hell is seen as eternal punishment for, you know, basically, um, well, depending on which camp, either being a bad person or failing to believe, confess in Christ, et cetera. Okay. So the key word is punishment. Um, Here's a couple of passages of scripture that support. Some good biblical support for this idea. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the, heirs of the, uh, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another, Matthew 18, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away, it's better for you to enter life uh, with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. So there are some examples um, of passages of Scripture that would be invoked by an advocate of this particular perspective on Uh, the ultimate destiny of the unfortunate ones this view is of course the most dominant view uh, today Uh, here's some a list of some folks who would hold this view St. Augustine as I mentioned uh, before at least in his later years John Calvin John Edwards you may be familiar with uh, his well-known sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God where he references the threat of hell over and over like you're being held like a little spider over the flames of hell I mean it's very graphic you read it. Uh, John Piper, a fairly well known contemporary uh, American Christian leader. Tim Keller, very prolific writer. Um, and again, most Catholics and Protestants today would hold this view hopeless conscious torment or something of the sort. Uh, the, thir- the second view, maybe a little bit less familiar, what I'm calling today the conditionalist view. And I'll explain what that means. This is um, probably more. Familiarly, it's referred to as annihilationism, and um, what annihilationism refers to is the idea that the unfortunate ones after death are immediately annihilated, meaning they cease to exist. So here, the word hell refers to this process of completely destroying the soul so that it vanishes from the cosmos. Um, And by the way, this view is called the conditionalist view because it embedded in the conditionalist view is this idea that human beings only exist because of the um, continual presence of the creator God. And so the idea would be that when the sustaining presence of the creator God uh, is removed from the postmortem human being, then that postmortem human being would cease to exist. Um, and in fact, there, there is, there is uh, I don't have all this reference, but I'll just say, and you can look it up, but um, in Timothy, the Apostle Paul actually describes God as the only one who is immortal. And so, for those of us who hold the idea that the human soul is innately immortal in and of itself, we inherited that idea actually not from Scripture itself, not from our, uh, the, our roots in Judaism but from Plato. Plato was a very influential Greek philosopher, and to the extent that what's Hellenistic thinking was interwoven into Christianity in the earliest centuries, which it inevitably was, uh, uh, to that extent, then we incorporated Plato's idea that a human being is innately immortal. And what the conditionalists will say is that strictly speaking, biblically speaking, that idea that of an of a innately eternal human soul Comes not from scripture, but comes from uh, Hellenistic Platonic thinking. And so a conditionalist will stress that idea and say, you know, then based on that, then the easiest way, the most natural way uh, to read, you know, phrases like destroy, destruction, perish, death, is to interpret them as saying that the human being, the human soul, will no longer exist, right? Um, So that's what a conditionalist will say. That's what they'll argue. So here's some examples, Matthew 10, uh, verse 28, uh, 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 don't fear people, but fear, I'm trying to give some context, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, that's Matthew 10, 28, you can look later for more, more context, but a conditionalist would say, see the, the most natural way to interpret that is with reference to the annihilation of the human being, both body and soul. Um, Philippians 3 their end, that's the unfortunate ones, their end is destruction. And an annihilationist would say the most natural way to read that is ceasing to exist, being destroyed. Um, Second Thessalonians, these will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Now here, this is an interesting part, and if you get into the literature, you'll find all these uh, um, nuances of understanding. Um, So here, an annihilationist would say the best way to understand eternal destruction is to think of an act of destruction that is eternal in its effects, right? So not to be macabre, but um, for someone tragically who is given a death penalty, then the, you know, in the moment, the, the injection of the toxin into their body would only be a moment but the destruction of that human life would be forever, right? You're not coming back from that. So, so that's what an, an annihilationist would say, this eternal destruction. It's not destruction that goes on and on forever. It's destruction that is momentary, but its effects are forever, right? So that's a real discussion that's um, a discussion point that's in this conversation. So this is the view of annihilationism, also called conditionalism. And this view, again, has been held by Folks from the earliest centuries of the church, Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, uh, in the first few centuries, both of those uh, today are more uh, contemporary um, folks who hold this perspective. Um, N.T. Wright, you may be familiar with him, a very prolific writer. He holds this perspective. Um, Edward Fudge as uh, a Church of Christ scholar. Um, who's one of the most widely respected scholars on this conversation, certainly as an advocate for annihilationism, Edward Fudge. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, very influential in my life. His scholarship on the life of the Apostle Paul is brilliant. F.F. Um, F. Bruce holds uh, annihilationism as his perspective. And then, as I mentioned before, Clark Pinnock, who's a well-known um, evangelical uh, thinker, theologian, and so on. He passed away, I think, in early 2000s. Um, uh, he held this position, annihilationism, uh, and then maybe the best known advocate for annihilationism was John Stott, who was um, an Anglican minister, British evangelical Anglican priest, uh, and he came out with a book in 1989. Some of you may remember this, and he scandalized the evangelical world when he came out with this book, and he was adv- and, you know kind of came out of the closet as uh, uh, subscribing to annihilationism and I've just got some quotes from his book. Um, In one place, he says, I also believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. He says uh, also, so both the language of destruction and the imagery of fire seem to point to annihilation. And so the word picture would be Um, if you think about this incinerating fire and you think about the human soul as being analogous to maybe a paper airplane, then what happens when a paper airplane goes into fire? Well, it ceases to exist. It's no more. So that's kind of the the idea, interpretively speaking, how how those passages would be interpreted. Uh, And then finally he says, it would be easier to hold together the awful reality of hell and the universal reign of God if hell means destruction and uh, and the impenitent are no more. So there's John Stott, one of the most well-known, that's the reason I quote him at length, one of the most well-known advocates for annihilationism. And then thirdly, third big kind of thought family is what I'm calling the restorative view. Um, In this view, hell is understood to serve some sort of purifying or purgative purpose after death and allows for at least the opportunity Uh, for the unfortunate ones to receive the love of God, reciprocate the love of God, and turn to God in repentance. And so this is a family of perspectives uh, that are ultimately, they're proposing some kind of purification phase or purging phase or a pruning phase, however you want to say it, after death, uh, which aims ultimately at restoring The human being to their creator uh, and father and ultimately responding to the love of God and reciprocating the love of God. And so in this paradigm, for example, the fire is understood as something, and this is how the ancient mystics would say it, the fire is God's holy love. The holy love of God's presence is experienced like a fire to those who resist it. But for those who embrace god's holy love that same fire is experienced as the warmth of embrace or the light of god's embrace and so that's the kind of conversation that goes on among the ancient mystics uh, who would hold this restorative view so here the key word uh the key word before uh, for eternal conscious torment the key word would be punish um for the conditionalist view the key word would be perish uh and here for the restorative view the key word would be purify so Anyone who rejects the fire of God's holy love experiences that love as misery, but when received, when we receive it, embrace it, reciprocate the fire of God's holy love, then it experiences warmth and light, light and healing. So, now, if this sounds a little bit like the idea of purgatory, um, it's because it is a little bit like the idea of purgatory, but it's actually very different um, at a core level in a way that makes it not like the idea of purgatory at all. And, and this is important, so I'm going to take a little time to distinguish here. Um, the idea of purgatory in Catholic theology, I'm going to talk about it in past tense because there are many Catholics who no longer hold this. So, um, But the idea of purgatory is uh, this, this intermediate phase um, where believers would go to essentially work off the guilt of any sin in their life w- for which there wasn't repentance and penance. So in in the theological construct that included purgatory, there's still eternal punishment for unbelievers. But for believers, there's purgatory, this place where you could essentially go and work off the remaining Guilt, and of course, your surviving family members could pray you out of purgatory, and they could give indulgences that would buy you out of her purgatory, and that's what got Martin Luther so upset, hence the Protestant Reformation. Right? So, uh, so that's purgatory, but very different from that is this restorative view um, of hell. Here, this intermediate purgative kind of state is seen as a pruning, a purifying, even a healing function, even if it's un. Unpleasant, and this is for the unfortunate ones, right? Like, like believers or the fortunate ones after death enter straight into eternal bliss. But under this restorative view, like these ancients we're going to talk about, um, their idea would be that for, for the unfortunate ones, this is what hell is. Hell is a place where the unfortunate ones, unbelievers, encounter the fire of God's holy love and are given opportunity to repent and respond. To God's love, right? So that's the difference. The reason this view sounds like purgatory but in fact is not is because of that difference uh, right there. And so the restorative view, the logic, the thinking goes something like this. God wants everyone to be saved. God has the ability to get what God wants. Therefore, in the end, everyone will be saved some way, somehow. That's the thinking of the restorative view. Some passages of Scripture that seem to talk this way. Uh, here are some examples, 1 Corinthians 15. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Wow. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. And I'm telling you, when the, uh, some of the earliest uh, theologians and saints, so that, God may be, so that God may be all things in all people. They would expand all in all in that way. 1 Timothy 4. For to this end we toil and struggle because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people especially of those who believe. Wow. Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So all clearly in the mind of the Apostle Paul there. uh, When he says all people, he's not thinking of believers. (laughs) All unbelieving people. Uh, Colossians 1. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. One more, Ephesians 1. He, God, has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so this restorative view would simply say this is God's desire that all things would be saved, restored, etc. God has the ability to get what God wants, and so ultimately, in the end, we hold out that eventually God will achieve. What God wants now. This view, this restorative view, um, has been held by, as I said before, held by uh, folks throughout the ages of the church. Uh, Clement, who was a bishop, uh, or one of the or maybe not the earliest bishop, but one of the earliest bishops of the church uh, at Rome. Um, Origen of Alexandria held this view. Gregory of Nyssa, who was one of the Cappadocian fathers. If you follow that, um, here's a quote from Gregory of Nyssa: "God's end is one." And one only, it is this, when the complete whole of our race shall have been perfected from the first man to the last, some having at once in this life been cleansed from evil, others having afterwards in the necessary periods been healed by fire, to offer to every one of us participation in the blessings which are in him, which the scripture tells us, I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor thought ever reached. There it is, everybody, Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, So lots many other figures. In fact, I want to say this, um, and I'd be the first one to admit that Martin Luther never really worked this out fully, so far as we know. But we have this this little line from him in a private correspondence where Martin Luther was corresponding uh, with someone who had some questions about hell and that whole conversation. And in this letter, Martin Luther uh, at least hints at the idea of a second chance after death, that possibly people could receive a second chance after death. Here's the snippet from the letter. This is Martin Luther writing in 1522 correspondence to Hans von Rickenberg. He says, It would be a completely different question to ask whether God could grant faith to a few at the moment of their death or even after their death and thereby save them through faith. Who would doubt that he could do this? So Martin Luther is saying, who would doubt that God could give someone faith even after their death? And so as simple as that sounds, everybody, just understand how huge that is in this broad conversation. So what Luther is saying is that, you know, hopeless conscious torment has been eroded by his notion that God could give someone faith after their death. And so, according to Luther, there is this idea of a second chance, which is exactly what the restorationists would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what we mean after death, possibility at least, of a second chance. And so uh, Luther is not alone in this. Um, other more contemporary figures, David Bentley Hart has recently written a book about this where he um, argues for a restorationist view. Um, and then, again, this, this is, could be controversial, but in my, own, uh, in my own mind, I put C.S. Lewis in this camp. And the reason I do so is because of his book, The Great Divorce. If you're familiar with Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, and he says right up front in the preface of that book, you know, that this is not a formal theological statement. He says, this is just kind of my imagination. And the Great Divorce goes on. But clearly in that book, the way C.S. Lewis represents hell um, is that it does serve, at least potentially, as this restorative kind of function where, in fact, the people who are in hell are given ample over and over and over and over again opportunity to respond to the love of God and to draw near um, to God. And so based on that simple uh, book, I would put C.S. Lewis in this category. And I'd be the first one to admit anybody who wrote as much as C.S. Lewis, you could also find other aspects of his writing that might put him in another camp. And I would certainly not object to that. But based on The Great Divorce, I would put Lewis in this restorative camp Um, so so there you have it so again my whole point with all of that was to say when it comes to this question this topic of hell uh, you have options (laughs) you you have options it is true that there is a dominant perspective held at least within evangelical christianity in our part of the world uh here and now Uh, and yet when you look at when you step back and look at the bigger picture um the reality is you have options. You know, I said this before, but, you know, if you think about a rock and you think about, you know, the flames of hell and a rock, a rock can can be placed into flames and that rock won't be changed. It'll just experience the heat of those flames. Now, if you put skin and nerve endings on that rock, then you have something like the idea of eternal conscious torment, right? It's like forever and ever in the flames experiencing pain, you know, on and on and on. So you said so that... that image of a rock kind of helps to remember uh, eternal conscious torment or if you think about as i mentioned before a paper airplane being thrown into uh white hot flames that paper airplane is incinerated and it exists no more so there you have kind of an image that represents annihilationism pretty well uh, or you could think about a pair of scissors right and a pair of scissors might be used to prune to prune away you know uh, uh think about a plant you know, pruning away so that that plant can be purified and can grow. So really the question of hell can be thought of as a game of rock, paper, scissors. (laughs) All right. Okay. Love that one. Um, All right. So a couple of things I want to say before we're done. Um, And one is this, as I mentioned before, um, as you, oh, I know it's not this simple, but I'm going to state it simply. As you choose which perspective you hold on this question, and it's not that simple, but I'm saying it like that, or as you consider this question as a whole, uh, I want to suggest that you carefully consider uh, what Jesus says God is like, right? So as I said before, in every subcategory of theology, we're always kicking up dust, and in that dust cloud, we're forming an image of what God is like. That's always the case, and it's especially true in this conversation. So as you consider your perspective on hell, I want to ask, urge, that you consider carefully what Jesus said God is like, right? Because we are Christians, right? That means we see the full self-revelation of God in Christ. That's what it means to be Trinitarian. Okay, so there's a couple of places we could go, but I'm just going to choose Luke chapter 6. Here. We could also go uh, to Matthew chapter 5, you'd get basically the same sentiment, but I'm going to read this um, from Luke 6 kind of at length. Listen to this. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Uh, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. And now listen to what he says here. This is enormous. And you will be... Children of the Most High. So, all up until now, it looked like Jesus was just giving us an incredibly high moral bar to clear, and maybe it even almost felt arbitrary, right? Like just pushing, pushing, pushing. But he says, No, no, no. All this, after all, was connected to the character and the nature of God. You will be children of the Most High. Listen to this. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, just think about that. Just hold that in your soul and realize that when it comes to this conversation or question or consideration of hell, realize that as we form our perspective on hell we are making a direct implication on the nature of God and what God is like and so just to say flatly when you think about the idea of hopeless conscious torment can you see a God who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked being the architect of such a scheme so that's a good thing um, to think about now A couple of other closing thoughts, and and then we'll be done. Um, There is a sheet that's out there somewhere. Maybe it'll be made available online, because you may not uh, remember this, and hopefully we can can get the sheet to you. But if you want further study on this, I would say a good book to start um, is a book called Four Views on Hell. Um, My book study group back before quarantine hit my book study group, we worked through that book together. Uh, it's a great, energetic conversation, and that book has four views because one one of them is the the view on purgatory, and I kind of blended those together um, in my three part scheme. But if you want further study, that's a great book, and then of course it has a bibliography, and that'll lead to more and more and more, and it just can go on forever. You can have books forever. You can have a whole library full of books on this one question. All right. Um, so here's some here's some uh, an attempt to. Anticipate some of the buts, right? Like you, you open up this topic, um, and invariably there are some some buts, some um, some hey what abouts, you know, that emerge from from this conversation. Even just getting just this far, um, and one could be could be this. Hey, um, you know, this is not really a but, I guess, but maybe you can say it as a but. But I used to be so certain about the question. Now I'm not so sure. In fact, this this whole conversation can make some people uncomfortable just because some people have gotten the idea that, you know, you are the most solid in your faith when you are the most certain. And so it can be a little bit destabilizing uh, to say, you know, I used to be so certain on this question, now I'm not so sure. The thing I would say is very different than that, which would be that if if gaining additional information in a certain conversation... <laughs> causes you to be less confident <laughs> in the way you analyze that conversation, then you're actually in a better place, not a worse place. So if gaining information brings you to a place of, well, maybe a more, a more nuanced place perhaps, uh, then you're actually in a better place than you were in right, like with having very little information and a whole lot of confidence. <laughs> See what I'm trying to say? If you have very little information and a whole lot of confidence, you're actually not in a very good place even though you may feel confident on the inside. But if you have a lot more information and a little bit less confidence, I'm telling you, ultimately, that's a better place to be. See? And so that actually plays into a question, you know, why wouldn't the Bible just make it crystal clear on this subject? Like, why wouldn't it just be clear? And, man, the only thing I can say there um, is that maybe, you know, there's a time when Jesus tells Peter, that Peter is going to come to um, a tragic end, that he's going to be bound up, you know, taken away. And when Jesus tells Peter about Peter's future, that he's going to come to a tragic end, um, Peter looks at John and says to Jesus, what about him? (laughs) And Jesus says, you don't worry about him. You just worry about you. You know? And so the thing that I could say, and I know this isn't the complete answer to this whole thing why isn't just clear, but maybe it's because our obsession with this question is really ultimately about everybody else, where where your heavenly father is calling you to faithfulness directly toward him. And maybe as we focus there, these questions become less less so. Um a second, a second uh, objection would be something like this: um, Well, uh, but that view is not Christian, right? Because we, some, we we become so accustomed to the dominant view that we've received, we're tempted to look and say, "Well, that view is not, not Christian." And and I just want to say, what's actually going on there? Um, you know, you could say, like like for example, I've known people who have objected to uh, the idea of annihilationism because they are aware that Jehovah's Witnesses subscribe to annihilationism. And, you know, I know that that Jehovah's Witnesses subscribe to annihilationism and Jehovah's Witnesses aren't authentically Christian and therefore annihilationism isn't authentically Christian. See how that happened? Guilty by association. And someone someone else might say, well, that restorative view you talked about, that sounds an awful lot like universalism. And I know that lots of quirky religions subscribe to universalism. And so that view can't be Christian. See what I mean? So we can go into this game of guilty by association well you could also say the same thing about you know that idea about eternal conscious torment the muslims believe that and the muslims aren't christian and so we see what i mean the game of guilty by association um, actually is it it doesn't help at all um, and then the next but potentially uh, would be something like this and i mentioned this before uh, where someone might say um but without without the fear of hell Why would anyone be motivated to follow Jesus? And what I want to say is, I want to pretend that you didn't say that. (laughs) But I know that's real. I know that if not said out loud, I know that sentiment, that feeling uh, is real. And man, you know, again, like I said before, we have plus or minus a dozen sermons or sermon fragments in the book of Acts, evangelistic sermons. And the threat of hell is never mentioned in a single one of them. We have in all the New Testament writings, primarily from the Apostle Paul, but from all the apostles written to other believers, many instances of urging believers um, to share the good news of Christ. And never never, ever in any of those instructive texts is there the motivation of the fear of hell right as a motivation for evangelism. It just, it's not there. And so the thing I would say is that If you've come to a place, and I'm not looking at you, I'm talking about all those other people, but if you've come to a place where the fear of hell is central to your kind of your envelope for how you think about what it means to become a Christian, I want to say this as gently as I can, you're in a very unbiblical place because because scripturally the threat of hell does not feature in the evangelistic conversation at all. It's not there. And so the thing I would say is just a word of caution to just kind of back up. But, the, you know, the most important thing is to say it in the affirmative. We follow Jesus because he's lovely. We follow Jesus because we're enamored by him. We follow Jesus because of the kindness of God. As Paul said, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We follow Jesus not because of threat or not because of fear. In fact, it's the opposite. Perfect love has cast out fear, the Apostle John says. And so, uh, you know, maybe it's a good thing to raise that objection because it gets us to a point where we can share those kinds of truths in the affirmative. It is the goodness of God that draws us to him. Now, one final thought, and, and we'll conclude, and this is explicitly kind of related to the evangelism conversation. Um, you may experience a friend who might say, you know, Christianity sounds good and it sounds appealing, but, but I just don't think I could accept it because I can't believe in a God um, who would set up a system where the vast majority of people are tortured forever in hell. Someone might say, you know, I like your Christianity, but I just can't accept it because I can't accept a God who would set up a system that ends up in the vast majority of people uh, torturing, being tortured in hell. And what can you say in response to that? It's okay. You don't have to believe that. Lots, lots of Christians don't believe that. Lots of Christians believe that's not actually the character of God. It's not essential. See what I mean? So you can just skip on through that conversation. And you might evoke some real genuine interest there. You know, it could also be fun to say, you know, where did you get that idea? Where did you get that idea that it's essential to Christianity? that you have to believe that in order to be a Christian. That might actually evoke some interesting conversation. But the point is, you can, you can, uh, it doesn't have to be a conversation stopper with your friend or family member. See what I'm saying? So you can still proceed to, why do we follow Christ? Because he's beautiful. Because he's merciful. Because he's a healer. Because God is good. That's why we're in this thing. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father.